Hebrews, the first chapter and verse 1. And ladies and gentlemen, this is the word of God. Long ago, at many times, and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. For to which of the angels did God ever say, You are my son, today I have begotten you. Or again, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. And again, when he brings the firstborn into the world, he says, Let all God's angels worship him. Of the angels, he says, he makes his angels winds, and his ministers a flame of fire. But of the son, he says, Your throne, O God, is forever and ever the scepter of righteousness is the scepter of your kingdom you've loved righteousness and hated wickedness therefore god your god has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions and you lord laid the foundation of the earth in the beginning and the heavens are the work of your hands they will perish, but you remain, and they will all wear out like a garment. Like a robe, you will roll them up. Like a garment, they will be changed. But you are the same, and your years will have no end. For to which of the angels has he ever said, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? Are they not all ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation? Let's pray together. God, as we look to you, we look to you to unveil your word to us. Bring it, Lord. Open up our eyes to see. In Jesus' name, amen. Please be seated. This is Sermon 40 in a series on the book of Hebrews. And in that we're about to embark on Hebrews chapter 9. It means we've accomplished something. We've gone through the first eight chapters in the book. And after four chapters, we had something of a review. And after eight chapters, I thought it would be good to have something of a review again to see the whole. Sometimes we have that expression can't see the forest for the trees. Sometimes we are not able to see because we don't see the big picture. We don't see what's around us. And it's very, very helpful to us to see the big picture in Hebrews. So I think walking through what we've discovered so far, just in terms of some of the highlights, it would be about a 48-hour uh, cruise to go through all that we've gone through before. But let's just pick out some of the highlights, starting with what the book of Hebrews is. It's a letter written to Hebrew Christians, and the message is, there's nothing to go back to. 
There's nothing to return to. Though they were being sucked in because of the society around them, the Jewish society, to go back to the old ways, the message was don't do it. Don't do it. Jesus is better. And that is the key phrase in the book. They were saved, these uh, Hebrew Christians under apostolic preaching. We know that from chapter 2, verse 3. Those who heard him. And then we understand that this is very much a congregation. It could have been more than one congregation, but this is basically, I think, and many believe, a sermon to a church. Or maybe more than one church, but a sermon nonetheless. These people had suffered persecution, but that had uh, lightened in recent times. We see that in chapter 10, verse 32. And so these were professing believers who had been professing believers for, for quite some time. Hebrews chapter 5 tells us, though by this time you ought to be teachers, you have someone to teach you again the very basic principles and elements of the Christian faith. We see from the end of the book, chapter 13, verse 24, that it was probably written from Italy. There's a phrase there, those from Italy send you their greetings. And so uh, the writer was sending, we believe, greetings from people near to him there in Italy. The date, well, we don't know the date, but it points to, the, the letter itself points to the fact that it was probably, most likely, before the fall of Jerusalem, which took place in AD 70, which is a key date in Israel's history. And we know that from some of the elements in the book. It seems that the offerings and sacrifices were still ongoing. The priest stands daily ministering and offering sacrifice. Some people could dispute that because it could be a reference to the past. But it would seem very unlikely and really unfathomable if this letter was written after AD 70 when literally all hell broke loose in Jerusalem and the temple was destroyed, not to mention that. It would seem crazy when he's writing to Hebrew Christians not to mention everything is over and here's the reason why the temple's been destroyed. But that is not what we find in the book. And uh, uh, if that was the case, he would say, look, one of the reasons why we know that uh, things are obsolete of old co covenant times is it's no longer happening. He didn't write that. So many believe, I, I'm among them, that this was written before that time. Maybe AD 64, 66, 68, around there. Who wrote it? There's a lot of speculation. We don't know. Uh, many names have been suggested. Paul, I don't think it was Paul. Uh, Barnabas, Apollos, Luke, Clement, Philip, Priscilla, Silvanus, all names that have been mentioned, but in all reality, we don't know. And we don't need to know. It's one of the questions many Christians will ask the Lord when they go to heaven. Who was that guy? And we'll get the answer. All we know is that it was written and it has the stamp of the Holy Spirit on it for sure. The theme, as I've mentioned, is Jesus is better. It mentions that phrase a number of times and that's the message. Jesus is superior in his person and in his finished work. He's superior to anything and anyone else. In fact, if we grasp the message of Hebrews, we'll never be victims of the savage wolves that are around us in our own day, the Christian cults, Jehovah's Witnesses and Mormons, Latter-day Saints, and we could list a number of them, all of whom reject 
the deity of Christ and the humanity of Christ. Jesus is better. He's better than angels, better than Moses, better than Joshua, better than Aaron. His priesthood is better than Aaron. Uh, he has uh, accomplished his uh, work in a better tabernacle. He has uh, conducted a better sacrifice. And that word better is so interesting because we might think, why didn't the writer just say he's best? Why this better, 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 better? Well, when it's mentioned over and over and over and over and over again that he's better in terms of a comparative rather than using the superlative best, 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 no, better, 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 it builds a tremendous argument because it doesn't matter what issue you raise, Jesus is better. He's better than this. He's better than that. He's better than the big Mo, Moses. He's better than all that you could put together. He is better, better, better. And that establishes the fact that he is best. And that's what happens in this epistle. You know what an epistle is? It's the wife of an apostle, right? <laughs> Just seeing if you're awake. There are seven passages of comparison. We've actually dealt with four of these so far. And these go into the idea that one thing is inferior and another thing superior. Jesus is superior to angels. The inferior is angels. The superior is Jesus. The inferior is Moses. The superior is Jesus. The inferior is the Levitical priesthood. And uh, the superior is the... Uh, priesthood of Melchizedek. We saw that in chapter 7. And then we see the inferiority of the Old Covenant and the superiority of the New Covenant in chapter 8. There's more to come. Three more. The tabernacle of Moses uh, rather than the heavenly tabernacle. That's chapter 9. We're about to embark on that journey. The Levitical sacrifices inferior to the sacrifice of Jesus. And then lastly, Mount Sinai, the inferior to the Mount Zion of uh, the heavenly that we have come to. And so, so much is going to be seen as we go through those passages. We know too the book gives us five solemn warnings. We've encountered three of those. Warnings against neglect, chapter 2. Warnings against unbelief, chapter 3. Warnings against apostasy, chapter 6. We'll encounter those. I'd like us to focus in on the first few verses, and I just want to pull out some things before we move on. And that is the contrast between what had happened in Old Covenant times, verse 1, long ago, at many times and in many ways. In other words, there were diverse ways that God spoke in Old Covenant times. He spoke from burning bushes. He spoke through prophets. He spoke through various different means. And yet now the contrast, while all of that had the authority of God, it was a mediated voice. God spoke through someone other than himself. But now he's spoken in his son. And as we're going to look at this passage, he is now speaking directly as the son, as God the son. It's on a whole nother level. While it was still 100% authoritative as a word from God, it comes with this extra spice when it's God himself showing up and speaking. God has now spoken in a son, and the message is, this is the last word. 
You miss this, you've missed everything. You miss Jesus, you missed everything. You might have everything else in place, but your relationship with Jesus Christ is the most important issue of your life. It's bigger than any news you can get from the doctor. It's, bit, it's bigger than any news you can get from your CPA, from your accountant. It's bigger than anything you might face in your life. The issue of what do you do with Jesus Christ? And that's the message. This is the last one. He's spoken in a son, and you and I are responsible. Let me ask you, what have you done with this Jesus? If you're a Christian, you've embraced him, you've repented, you've believed, and he is altogether lovely in your eyes. But outside of Christ, there is this warning. Neglect this message at your peril. Don't do it. Today, if you hear his voice, don't harden your heart. So, Jesus is a prophet, but he's more than a prophet. He has uh, spoken in old times by the word that came forth through the prophets, through the events of the old covenant. But now, this is the Son of God in Revelation. It is the word himself. I can't help but read through this passage and think of John chapter 1. Because that is the revelation that in the beginning, by the way, I think in John chapter 1, verse 1, John is referencing Genesis. Genesis starts with these words, in the beginning. What does John chapter 1 start with? In the beginning. That's not by a fluke. That was John saying, if you really want to understand Genesis, you must understand Jesus. In the beginning, the Word was already there. The Word was there. In the beginning was the Word. As far back in time as you can go, the Word was already there. The Word was with God. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God and the Word was God. And there is even there a, a real reference to what becomes the doctrine of the Trinity. Two persons mentions, both are called God. There's a third mention elsewhere in John. He is also God. But there is one God, two persons. There it is in John chapter 1. And we see in John 1, Jesus created everything. By him, all things were made. And that's what we see in Hebrews 1. So I think the writer of Hebrews, rather than quoting anything else, he's alluding to what we now know as John's gospel. And many of those same truths are brought out in this passage. I hope we can see some of these. There is similarity. In John 1, uh, verse 1, in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, the Word was God. Then in verse 14, and the Word became flesh. The Word became flesh. And that is the message of the Son of God here in Hebrews also. He created all things, John chapter 1. He created all things, Hebrews chapter 1. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, but in these last days, He's spoken to us in His Son, by His Son, whom He appointed the heir of all things, through whom also He created the world. If you and I only had this in the New Testament, it would cause us to worship Jesus. He's the Creator, and He's the one who will inherit everything. It's interesting, you'd think normally you'd start with creation and then go on to what will happen later on but the message of hebrews is onward and forward and he starts with the fact that jesus will inherit everything now it may not look like this especially for you hebrew christians when you're in a huddled corner because you're facing persecution it doesn't look like jesus is on the throne 
He also talks of this in chapter 2. We do not yet see him, but one day we will. He's the rightful ruler and he will inherit everything. So it doesn't matter what terrorist groups are doing, what foreign nations are doing. Jesus will inherit everything and everything is going towards that event when it will be seen. He's the ruler. He owns everything. He owns everything now, but one day you're going to see that. You're going to see it with your eyes. He is the appointed heir of all things. And by the way, he also created everything. If we understand this, we can never put Jesus on the same level as any other religious leader. Doesn't matter. Bring him up. Muhammad, Gandhi, not sure he's a religious leader. Buddha, Confucius, have I confused you yet? Uh, on and on we could go. We could go through a list. None of them are going to inherit everything. None of them created the world. He, verse 3, is the radiance of the glory of God. Unpack that and it will take an hour. And the exact imprint of his nature. In other words, in fact, it's uh, an interesting Greek word. It's where we get the English word icon. Why does God not want us to build images and icons? Well, because he already has one. Jesus is the icon of the Father. He's the express image. Now, normally we've got a problem there because you have an original and then you have a copy. And there can be a lot of time between the original coming and the copy coming. We should never make that mistake. Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact image, but not in terms of time. There never was a time when the Son was not. But He is the exact copy of God because He is God. Think about it. If something or someone is God and there's a copy made and he has all the same attributes, one of the attributes of being God is that you're eternal. And Jesus is eternally the Son of God. He's the eternally begotten Son of the Father, as the Nicene Creed puts it. By the way, why do we recite creeds? Because it unites us. But doesn't it divide? Yes, it does divide, but it also unites I remember back in the 90s, I was pastoring a church and there was an event taking place and uh, 22 churches were invited to be part of this evangelistic endeavor and uh, we were part of that and we were informed that we had to sign a document saying that we embrace the Apostles' Creed. I'd never heard of such a thing in my life, but that was the thing we were told to do and so I happily signed that because there's nothing in that that I would disagree with. Then we were informed only 20 of the 22 made it to the next round because two dropped out. They couldn't say it. They couldn't say everything you and I believe in the Apostles' Creed. This is not just things we've made up in our time. This was Orthodox Christian doctrine in the first centuries of the church. It was not written by the Apostles, even though it's called the Apostles' Creed. It was called the Apostles' Creed because it agreed with the doctrine of the Apostles. And so it was news to me, but I thought, that is great. The false churches dropped out. <laughs> Amen. False churches are exposed when you say, this is what we believe. Do you believe that? Well, mm, uh, mm, yeah. out. Thank you. And it also says to us, this is what unites us. And many times in Christian history, uh, you'll, you'll see that the Apostles' Creed was something that had to be either recited or say, yes, I believe that, credo. I believe, Latin word credo, which means in English, 
translated creed, I believe that on that basis people were baptized. They had to say, I believe Orthodox Christian doctrine. And many times these creeds were the last words on Christians' lips before they were martyred. Uh, you know that, and you think, well, I want to say those creeds with a little bit more heart next time rather than, I believe. In... No, this, this is stuff to live and die for. You better believe the right thing about Jesus, that he's truly God and truly man, as the Nicene Creed renders it. So it is. He created all things. And by the way, he's inheriting all things. He's the radiance of the Father's glory, the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature. And look at this. I don't think any other religious leader can say this. How about you? He upholds the universe by the word of his power. People say, what has God done for me lately? Well, he's actually holding your brain cells together while you're defying him. He's holding every atom together, including what happens between your ears. So he's given you the right to rebel. Wow. See, if you and I were king, we would just say, Zappo, you're out of here. But God in his grace, in common grace, allows many people that defy him to live. And he sends them rain and he sends them sunshine. He's a merciful God. Amen. Amen. Then we see something of the finished work of Christ. After making purification for sins, not attempting to, not making it maybe happen if men will do something. No, after making an atonement, after making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. That would be a high alert statement in Jewish thought because in the Jewish tabernacle and temple there was no place for a priest to sit down. Their work was never finished. Jesus, unlike those others who are making continual sacrifices, oh no, Billy Bob's just sinned again, another sacrifice. Oh, Mildred, she's just, oh, okay, got the goat, yeah, okay, slay the goat. On and on and on and on, and blood everywhere, blood everywhere, blood everywhere. Uh, you're making the point, what do you need to say? Blood everywhere, blood everywhere. It was ridiculously ongoing, and Jesus on the other side, in contrast, rather than making ongoing sacrifices, makes one sacrifice for sin and then sits down. It's all done, nothing more to do. He made purification and sat down. What a statement. We think, well, this needs to be a more action verse. No, it couldn't be more of an action verse. You, you think, no, and Jesus, he calmed the sea at this point after he was dead. No, no he couldn't have done a more impressive thing and sit down. That's what he did. Not on earth, but in heaven. After he rose from the dead, he was able to sit down at the Father's right hand where he ever lives to make intercession for us. This would be dramatic. And that's what Hebrews does. It opens our eyes to things we can't see. No one in Jerusalem on the day of the crucifixion could see what was happening. It looked like defeat everywhere. This is Messiah nailed to a cross. How can this be a good day? Why do we call it Good Friday? It didn't look good at all. It was a great day. Because if we could see in the spiritual realm, Jesus wasn't defeated. He was winning. He was winning. He was winning. On the cross, sins were laid on him. And he passively 
absorb the the wrath and the anger of God due to sinners. It didn't look like that. It looked like he was just like any other criminal. But he was absorbing the wrath of God. How do we know it? The Old Testament, as well as the New, tells us very, very clearly. Oh, we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to our own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The punishment due to us was upon him, and by his wounds we are healed. Wow, it's an amazing thing. And in the spiritual realm, it looked like he was losing, losing, losing. In the spiritual realm, he was winning, winning, winning. Physically, looked like a defeat. Was not. He was triumphing over that, them in the cross. It's as if he's hanging there and saying, take that devil. Take that devil. As the serpent is bruising his heel, he is crushing the serpent's head. Genesis 3.15. It's victory all the way. And at the right hand of the Father, there is one now who sits and makes intercession. And he sits making intercession based on a finished work. That's the message of Hebrews. Well, how do you aim to go through chapters 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, and 8 right now? I don't know. I, I really don't know. There's just so much because the theme is mentioned in this first part. And that's what's unveiled. That's what's unveiled as we continue to read. He's heir of all things. Really, there's a sevenfold presentation of Jesus as the Son of God. One, he's the heir of everything. Two, the universe made through him. Three, he's the radiance of God's glory. Four, the exact representation of God's being. Fifth, he upholds all things by the word of his power. Six, he made purification for sins. And seven, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. That's a mouthful. No one else ever has done any of that. Any of it. Chapter 1 goes on and reveals Jesus as God. He's truly God. God never said to angels, um, yeah, you be worshipped. I'm going to share my glory with another. No. God will not share his glory with another. Yet he says to all the angels, let all the angels of God worship him. If we only needed one verse for the deity of Christ, there it is. Angels, worship him. Uh, But we're only to worship God. That's right, worship him. Of the Son, verse 8, he, God, says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. And look at verse 10, another quotation from the Old Testament. And you, Lord, talking of the Son. Notice verse 8, it's the Son that's being addressed. Verse 10, and you, Lord. The Son is called Lord, and the one who is called Lord laid the foundation of the earth in the beginning, and the heavens are the work of your hands. That is a reference to Yahweh. God himself created. Yeah, that's right. And the Son of God is Yahweh. And if we took more time, we could walk through John 1. But John 2 is just as exciting uh, because John 1 unveils the fact that he's truly God. Uh, uh, Hebrews chapter 2 reveals he's truly man. And that's what the incarnation was all about. God chose in eternity past to redeem mankind. And it's the wonder of the angels. 
No angel who rebelled will ever be rescued and saved. There was no plan for them. None. But the plan was to save rebel human beings. So what had to happen? God had to become a man, live the life that was demanded by him according to his holiness, and then die a substitutionary death on the cross for man in their place. That's what happened. Nicene Creed puts it this way, He came down from heaven, became incarnate by the Holy Spirit and the Virgin Mary, and was made man. Again, Hebrews, rightly understood, will keep you from the Christian so-called cults. It'll also keep you, a reading of Hebrews, from Roman Catholicism, with its repeated sacrifice of Christ on Roman altars that perfects no one. That's where we're going in Hebrews 9, Hebrews 10. The atonement of Christ perfects all for whom it was made. Someone in the Roman Catholic Church can go over and over and over and over and over again to Mass and never know if they've been forgiven or if they sin before they leave the church or on the way somewhere else and then die. If they die with mortal sin without confessing it to the priest and achieving absolution, it's all over. They're not even going to go to purgatory. It's straight to hell. And yet, the work of Jesus Christ in Hebrews is, all for whom Jesus died are perfected. Verse 10 of Hebrews 10. By that will we have been sanctified, set apart through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. And every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices. That's what Rome does. It repeats the sacrifices of Christ on their altar. They actually don't, but that's what they believe they are doing. It is a blasphemous thing. I realize this is strong stuff. I realize that at times we've wanted to honor someone who is a Roman Catholic in the family. And uh, we've attended the service, but once the priest starts with his hocus-pocus, we excuse ourselves just very quietly and wait outside till all of that is over. Because I know what it is, it's a blasphemous act. Jesus is on Roman altars making sacrifice every time the Mass occurs. A repeated sacrifice. And it's so clear in Hebrews, Jesus has no need to repeat anything. He did it all once and for all and sat down. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice, this is Hebrews 10 verse 12, a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. He's saying it again. He sat down. Get it? He sat down. No one sits down. He sat down. For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. The tenses are just dramatic. We haven't got to Hebrews 10 yet, but oh, can't wait. A single sacrifice... By that, he has perfected, past tense. He's already done it. He's perfected a people. On the cross, Jesus perfected a people. Well, don't they have to do something? No, he did it for them. Who are them? Who is the those? Those who are being sanctified. Now, he's done it before we were converted. He's doing it. No, he's not doing it. He's done it. 
What he's doing in us is the work of sanctification, and we're on the way in sanctification. Every Christian should be able to say, I haven't arrived, but praise God I've left. I'm not what I once was. Such were some of you. Yeah. I'm not just doing all that still and saying, well, I just, I love sinning, God loves forgiving, we've got a great relationship. No, we do sin, but in the Christian heart, there's a mourning and a grieving over sin because God's changed the nature of the heart. And we now want him when we didn't want him before. He's taken out the heart of stone, put in a heart of flesh that now beats to know Christ. And we're on the way in sanctification, and you think, well, am I doing better this year than last year? And uh, am I better than five years ago as a Christian? And sometimes the the verdict's out, like, I'm not sure. Sometimes as I walk with the Lord, I become more aware of my sin because the Holy Spirit's bringing his shining light more and more and realizing, you know, your attitude is wrong here. A year ago, you could have gotten away with this, but now you can't. Have you found that in your own life? Have you found that in your life? Amen. Amen. But he's perfected a people who are on their way in sanctification. It's not based on their performance. It's based on his perfect work. What is? You're right standing with God. As we go to Hebrews 2, the message is, pay attention. Listen up. Listen up to what you've heard, lest you drift away from it. I once had someone say to me, why do you preach the gospel in every sermon? Because without it, we'll drift away. Do you know our default is works? We're programmed to think, what I do brings me the attention of God and acceptance with God. And the gospel is not about us, about what God does in us. It's about what God has done outside of us. Why? The gospel is news. Good news. You ever watch the news program where you turn it on, it's the six o'clock news? We don't watch the news anymore, we just go on the internet, right? And uh, at any moment we want, we get the news we want. We used to have to wait till the six o'clock news. How many remember those days, right? Six o'clock news. Can you imagine six o'clock news? Hey, my name's Jimmy, I'm the newscast guy. And it's great today because I feel good. I used to have problems with my feet. That, that, that's gone. I used to have some, uh, some blemishes on my face. That's, that's gone. I got some cream. It worked. And I got a pay rise last week, and I'm feeling good. You think, uh, this is the news? Yeah, and um, I'm in a good relationship now. I, I think I found the one I'm going to marry. I'm, I, today's a good day. And people say, uh, they're, they're going to be calling in. What, what's wrong with the news? You see, the message is not what has happened to us. That's a result of the news. The news is what God has done in the person and in the work of Jesus Christ. Here's the news. God, the second person of the Trinity, has become a man. Hear this, all the world. He's become a man, born of a virgin, living a sinless life. 
dying an atoning death on the cross and he's raised from the dead at the Father's right hand having achieved purifications for sins and he's ever living for his people to make intercession for them. That's the news. Get on board. Repent. Believe the good news. That's the message. The message is not our testimony. I love hearing testimonies. There's a place for testimonies. But that itself is not the evangel. That itself is not the message. The message is Jesus Christ. I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ for it is the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes. And there is rising up a people who are saying, forget all this attention about me. The message is Christ. The message is Christ crucified, what he did. And Hebrews is all about that. And without Hebrews, we'd have no real idea of what happened in the spiritual realm when Jesus died, when he made purification for sin. And this is why it's a faith book. And these people under persecution, they're going through hardship after hardship. They're hearing. There's nothing to go back to. It looks like there's a lot to go back to. I'm being shunned by society. Rome doesn't want me. The Jews don't want me. They're shunning me. They won't let me live the life of the Jew in society because I've embraced Christ. The message of Hebrews, there's nothing to go back to. You go back, you forsake Jesus, there's no other message. You'll be trampling his blood under your feet. That's Hebrews chapter 10. Don't apostatize. Don't go back. Don't drift. Keep hearing the message. It's urgent. You've got to keep hearing it. Because Satan whispers and even shouts in our ears some other message. You can't go to church. Look at what you did. Yes, I can. Look what he did. You can't go to church. You'll be a hypocrite. No, I go there as a sinner. There is nothing hypocritical in saying, I am what the Bible says I am. Deep in my sin. And that makes Jesus a powerful Savior. People hear this and say, that sounds harsh. No, it's just Bible. It doesn't matter where you go. The Bible reveals God's a holy God and we're a sinful people. Yeah, but you say that and some people won't come. I know. But the message doesn't change. Well, you know, I remember someone was uh, reaching out. They were interested in a young lady and they'd sent a sermon of mine to them. Big mistake. (laughs) And uh, I got the feedback that the relationship was off because this guy really loved my preaching, apparently, and the, the lady did not because it's so dark. She didn't get past the first 10 minutes. And all I did was quote scripture. Isn't that strange? A Christian having a problem with a preacher quoting scripture. And that's what Paul does in Romans. You read, I challenge you, read Romans. It doesn't get bright until Romans chapter 3, verse 21. But now... Before that, it's dark, then it's dark, then it's deeply dark, then it's dark, 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 dark. And if you're going to be a Bible preacher, you know what you're going to do? You're going to say, it's dark without Christ. You're dark without Christ. But when you see the blazing light of the glory of God in the gospel, it makes Jesus shine. I was filthy in my sin. I was a wretch, and look what God has done. Look how Jesus has done everything for me. Oh, the glory of God. Instead of that, if you cheapen the darkness, you cheapen the light. And our sin is really dark and his salvation is really light. Don't drift away. Verse 2, for since the message declared by angels 
proved to be reliable and every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution, how will we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? It was declared at first by the Lord and it was attested to us by those who heard. This is solemn. It was declared at first by the Lord and attested to us by those who heard. While God also bore witness by signs, wonders and various miracles and gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. This is strong stuff. Don't drift away. Hebrews 3 is about Jesus greater than Moses. Moses. There's no one more revered in Israel in religious society than Moses. And the author says, bring him up. Bring Moses up. Compare him to Jesus. There's no comparison. Chapter 4. There's rest to enter into, and you do it not by working for it, but by believing. Do you believe? We who have believed enter that rest. But isn't it about what we do? No, it's about what he did. But don't we have to keep the law? That's our requirement. We're required by God to keep every one of his commandments, but no one's done it. That's why Jesus came and did it for us. Not only are we saved by the death of Christ, we're saved by the life of Christ. How's that? Well, had you kept the law? No. Had Jesus sinned in any way? No. Hebrews 4 makes it clear he was tempted in every way as we are, yet without sin. He's the perfect, spotless Son of God. Jesus never once had to say sorry. Imagine growing up in that house. That'll be tough. I mean... Mary, I'm sure, said to the others, why aren't you more like Jesus? That would make everyone love Jesus, right? Yeah, goody two-shoes. Never had to say sorry. Always pleased his father. Only said what his father told him to say. Only did what his father told him to do. Have you ever done that? Live that kind of a life? I know, I don't have to follow you around. We don't need the FBI to follow you to know you're a sinner like I am. We've all sinned and come short of God's glory, which is the perfection demanded of us. But someone came and lived the perfect life for us. And that's the life that went to the cross. And he absorbed the punishment for us rebels. Fully and once and for all. And there on the cross, this perfect, unblemished lamb died in our place as the sacrifice. You go to many places, many churches, there are great churches out there, but many churches, they'd be shocked if they heard the true gospel. Most of our churches in America need to be re-evangelized. They think they're Christian. It's interesting when we're having... Uh, membership applications turned in. Uh, there are a number of times when people say, do you know what, I've been in church 20 years, but I first heard the true gospel at King's Church. Now, we're not unique. There are other gospel-preaching churches. But their testimony is, I got saved in a meeting at King's Church. Well, how did that happen? We didn't have a great choir, and we didn't say, come forward and walk forward and sign cards. No, they just repented in their seat and believed the message and realized they were a deep, deep sinner, and Jesus is a great Savior. That's it. 
They did what the Bible said. They repented and they believed. May God raise up strong gospel preaching churches and just tell it like it is. You see, the real sheep, they love the voice of the shepherd. They don't want a diluted thing. The message in most places is, you're not so bad. Just tweak a few things and you're going to be great with God. He's thrilled you've turned out as well as you have. Show me any of that in the Bible. Can you point to a verse? We're all pretty good. Yeah, I remember that verse. No, the Bible says there are none that are good. No, not one. Well, there's some. I mean, come on, Princess Diana. No, not one. There's some. Look at Gandhi. No, not one. There's some that are good. Mother Teresa. No, not one. What? what no one. No one. All we like sheep have gone astray. Not most, all. You know what keeps most Christians, so-called professing Christians, from being saved? Is they recite their own goodness. Someone gets hold of the gospel, they realize there's nothing in me. I was a wretch and Jesus did it all. That's why in heaven there'll be no songs about you and me. I know, the angel says, 88% of the songs in heaven are about Jesus and the, the lamb that was slain, but remember the 12% that you did. So let's sing songs about the things you did. You know when I say that, you just have to smile and laugh. You know that's not going to happen. Thank you, Lord, for my free will. That's why I'm here. I don't think that's going to go well. How about this one? I did it my way. No. Nope. <laughs> let's all sing that on the sound of the trumpet it's not going to happen no we're dazzled with the glory of God who has done everything for our salvation salvation is of the Lord Amen. from start to finish so as we wrap this up well aren't we going to get to more I, I, I don't think so there's just so much here maybe we need a part two of the overview but are we getting it? Because if we get it, you'll never... And this is my heart. You know, in the time of the New Testament, Acts chapter 20, Paul warned that savage wolves will come in among you, and we think, well, where are they? They're the cults out there. They're the ones knocking on our door. They're on the internet. They make YouTube videos, and they're savage wolves. They smile, and they've got a great, a great smile. Many of the heretics in church history were very nice people. But inwardly, ravenous wolves. You believe their doctrine, you go to hell. We don't want to talk about that. Jesus did. You see, I might be bold here outside of it. I ask Linda, did I do okay? <laughs> but if I'm a preacher of God's word, I'm going to say, I'm going to stand before you one day, Lord. And I don't want to say, I cut out this, I cut out that. I want to teach and preach what God's word says. And I tell you what, there's a desire in every true Christian to say, I want to be fed God's word, not some diluted thing. The job of a waiter in serving 
is to take what the cook has provided on the plate and without getting distracted, take it to the table and serve the people. They don't have the right to look at the plate and say, well, I don't think this is going to go down well. We're not, we're not going to put this on the plate. In fact, it's on there, but I'm going to take it off. Uh, we're not going to put broccoli in here. They're not going to like that. Let's put Cheetos. <laughs> I think the message for preachers and for us as Christians, the message to two preachers is, preacher, did you mess with the food? I don't want to mess with it. The message is magnificent. We were guilty sinners deserving God's wrath and God in his son has given us life and salvation forever. And when you understand that, you realize the perfection of the work of Christ has given us a righteousness that is perfect. And so that the moment you believe in Jesus, not only does the death of Christ count for you, but his life counts for you. And that life is credited to your account. And this has been the gospel all along. Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. And 88,000 years from now, you'll not be more perfectly righteous than the moment you believe in the sight of God because your righteousness is Christ's righteousness. You look for your righteousness and you say, did I do enough? No, 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 no. You go as a Christian to the book of God and it says, um, Jesus did this, Jesus kept the law, Jesus did this, Jesus did this. And you say, yeah, but it's not talking about me. Yes, it is. Christ is your righteousness. And so the works of Christ are now counting to you in the sight of God. And Jesus, oh, do you get this? I hope you do. The Father now treats you as if you were his son. Most frequent phrase in the New Testament is in Christ Jesus. In him. You're in him. And everything of Christ now belongs to you. And just as God would never throw his son out, he'll never throw anyone out who's in Christ. They have his righteousness. Should we be hearing about sanctification? Oh yeah. Should we talk about things in our lives that need to change? Oh yeah. But none of the changes make you more righteous than what Jesus did in his life for you and in his death for you. Your standing with God is now complete forever. He's perfected a people who are on their way working out sanctification. That's the message of Hebrews. Therefore, don't go back. Don't go back to a works program or a Christian light, L-I-T-E, message. You know the difference between the real thing and then something light? You can't get drunk on the light. Right? I want the real thing. The real thing is Jesus Christ. His person and his work. That's what Hebrews is all about. And Jesus is better than anything you can bring up. Any subject, any person, Jesus is better. Let's pray. Father, we just thank you for the message of Hebrews.
We pray, Lord, that we would see it and live in the good of it. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.